As we've been mentioning, Malcolm Holmline is in Austria. He is in Vienna. That is where the conference leadership mission is, and uh, he'll speak with us from there in just a second. Malcolm Holmline is executive vice chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations, joins us Fridays for the weekly update here at JM in the AM. As we said, Malcolm Honline is in Vienna as we speak on this Friday. Mr. Honline, welcome back to JM in the AM. Uh, it's good to be with you. I feel like I should be answering in German, <laughs> but I'm here in the Hofburg Palace, about to meet the Chancellor and his, uh, his minions. But it's a great introduction to being on JM and AM. <laughs> we'll prepare you for the encounter. <laughs> um, how, is, how has the mission gone so far? Pardon me? How has it gone so far, the mission to Vienna? Amazingly. And uh, we've had uh, meetings at the IAEA, which were very, very important, very timely. That is the International Atomic Energy Agency, which governs the negotiations, the inspections with Iran. We've had at the OSCE, which is the international body dealing with anti-Semitism. We've had uh, meetings with the organizations dealing with terrorism, as well as government officials here in Austria and members of the Jewish community. We just met immigrants coming from Iran, so it's been very fascinating. Some of the things you describe in the context of history are pretty unbelievable when you think about it. Um, all these years later, this is where uh, you're having conferences and discussions about anti-Semitism. This is where you're having discussions about uh, the future of the free world, as you mentioned, the IEA. Um, if, you, if you think back just to the, uh, uh, the period of World War II, you're in a place where barely a synagogue survived Kristallnacht where barely a small percentage of the Jewish population even survived the war. And this is what it's like years later. It's a thought that crosses every single person's mind. You cannot help but think about what took place here and the change also in Austria. I used to find it very difficult to come here because the attitude was we were victims you know, we, we were like the Jews. We were the first victims. Now there is a much greater willingness, especially in the heart of younger people from the government, to confront the evils that took place here, their responsibility, and even though there's still reluctance on the part of many, and uh, a willingness to a desire to be in the forefront of the battle against anti-Semitism, which seems here to be less prevalent than what we know in France, Germany, even England, certainly Brussels and Holland. Uh, the Jews here tell us that, uh, that the government has been very responsive to security needs, to other uh, issues. The Muslim population here, while very large, about 350,000, um, it doesn't seem to be, have been as radicalized and touched by the trends in Europe, although the Jewish community here is very alert very aware and preparing, and I think that's the key. It's not to create panic, but to put in place the steps so that the Jews who live here can live in safety, and you want to leave should do so in an orderly way. Right. Well, we wish you continued success on Shabbat in Austria and, of course, with the rest of the mission. Malcolm Honline live from Vienna, Austria, Friday morning. It's JM and the AM. A couple of items from this side of the world first. Um, there are many who are upset 
and I'm sure you've been following uh, through the media and social media the way many have reacted to how the president has portrayed those who were murdered at the kosher supermarket in um, in Paris, uh, random folks uh, who were you know gunned down in a in a deli in Paris, and we know what the reaction's been, and I think the reaction of the White House to the reaction has been even worse. What could you tell us about the way the president portrayed this and the reaction to it out there? Well, I have to tell you that in Europe, people are looking at it in complete uh, amazement. The language and then the initial responses later clarified much more so. Uh, but the initial responses seem to compound the problem, you know, saying, well, he only meant that they, they don't know their names or they don't name them by name. I mean, that is not a random killing. And they have, of course, since labeled it as name, face, and thing, but coming on the, you know, the failure to, visit, to participate in the Paris conference and the, uh, some of the other things that have taken place, you end up with this compounded, uh, concern. And, uh, uh, and I will tell you that it's reflected here by non-Jews as well who express their amazement that, uh, you know, asking us to explain what, what is really happening. Is it in the best interest of the President of the United States? Is there an advantage internationally to to what seems to be constantly downplay the Jewish targeted role in all of this? Is this just one example of how the President likes to downplay the fact that uh, in most cases it is Jews that are being targeted? I don't know that the president uh, does that. There are, there are two aspects to it. One, certainly in this case, it was a, a very blatant statement, whether it was intentional or prepared. I, I don't know. We don't know yet. But uh, it, it's also the failure to, be, to, to recognize and to state, to name the perpetrators, to identify them with radical Islam. It, it is uh, a, a something that many government officials here who do say it, and they, and you know, when they say it the first times, we were like taken aback because we're so unused to it that people will actually say that the perpetrators were Muslims and that that, that radical Islam Islamists are responsible for not all, but for much of the of the anti-Semitic attacks that have taken place in parts of Europe. Right. Uh, and I think that it, that it's really essential that we that you name names, that you shame, that you are able then to identify, and because of that, you can start isolating it. it was, I agree not all Muslims should be blamed for it, but that's why you have to identify who's responsible. And you have to hold them to account, and those who aid and abet them, and those who support them. And there is a reluctance, not just vis-a-vis Jews, but in general, when we uh, talk about some of the countries, you know, Arab leaders, others who, who raise with us why the United States is reluctant to take on the housings in Yemen or the or the in Syria to taking on some of the ISIS and, uh, and other groups who are active there, we bomb Al Qaeda in Yemen, and we did hit ISIS in, in the Kobani area, but there's a general seems to be a, a general reluctance where Iran's interests are involved, maybe because they want to see what happens with the negotiations, they don't want to undermine them, but. There are long-term interests and long-term stakes involved in all of this. And it's imperative that we have real clarity when addressing this. This is not something yeah. 
you can deal with in peripheral ways. If you don't go to the core and hone in and get to the source of it and be willing to say, and that's why much of Europe today ignored it or chose to turn a blind eye to the problems of the foreign fighters. Now, every meeting, this issue comes up because they don't have a solution to it. Right. The French uh, security said that it takes 10 guys for, to monitor every single one of the returning soldiers. And he said, I don't have enough to monitor a 1,000 of these uh, terrorists who went to, the, to or people who went to Syria and are coming back as trained terrorists, let alone thousands more in all of Europe. Second, the, the, these are, they're doing much more training on the Internet. We have to find ways to, to stop it to, without sacrificing freedom of speech. But I will tell you here in Europe, they're wrestling with that issue. They're trying to find a way to deal with it because they recognize that if you leave it, this cancer to grow, it's going to engulf them all. It's moving quickly enough as it is. It's America's one and only Jewish moments in the morning radio program. Heard on listeners sponsored WFMU East Orange, WMFU Mount Hope, Rockland County at 91.9 in the FM dial broadcasting live from the Sonia and Robert Gold Studios in Jersey City, New Jersey, around the world on the web, jmnam.org. Malcolm Holmline is in Vienna. All right, let's move on to the, uh, to the topic of the week. It seems like it's the topic of the week every week these days. Uh, and that's the uh, proposed March 3rd speech in Washington. So the Vice President of the United States has announced that he will not be at the Netanyahu presentation if he, in fact, does address uh, the joint session of Congress. Were you surprised by this announcement from the Vice President? The Vice President usually doesn't announce his meetings, his travel, uh, so six weeks in advance, usually not even two weeks in advance. So I was surprised. Uh, obviously, it's part of the effort to send a message uh, to Netanyahu. Uh, I hope that this genie can be put back in the bottle. The prime minister has made a decision now. He decided to go, uh, his decision to make. Uh, I know that there are many members who are expressing their views one way or another. I hope that this was all settled down, that they will give the prime minister a chance to hear his voice and his message in whatever form they decide and have whatever format they decide on ultimately. Uh, he is going to be speaking this coming week to the President's Conference uh, as we come, when we are in Israel, and we'll be making a significant address on this very topic. So I think people should listen and see what he has to say there. Um, what the, you- the unfortunate uh, byplay of all of this and listening to European leaders assess it uh, gives you a different perspective about uh, something we warned about a long time, and that is there should not be public disputes between the United States and Israel because the enemies of both countries exploit it, and the friends of both countries don't understand it and are trying to interpret it and, and are looking for other meaning and other... Uh, and when the New York Times uh, and the Washington Post came out and said that, in fact, they had been notified before, or they hadn't been notified you know, whether there, in fact, was a breach of protocol. Obviously, there were mistakes made, but uh, I think right now the focus has to be on the common interests. We're coming to a critical, critical stage in the Iran negotiations. It's not a matter of, of months. It may matter of days when we'll know if, in fact, these talks will continue, if, in fact, there, there is a, an agreement that some have muted. The inspectors and people we spoke to say they think that there are significant differences still 
and are not uh, at all confident that there will be uh, an agreement. And the I think that they're all looking at the global situation and saying now that Iran's role, despite all of the leeway we have given them, uh, continues to be an aggressive one vis-a-vis their nuclear uh, program. And the response that we all anticipated is now starting when Russia is building nuclear reactors in for Egypt to generate electricity. <clears throat> but it's the beginning, and you will see many others who now see the the, ten, the, the trend and are not going to be left behind. Do you get so Saudi Arabia, the UAE, many others will be in the, in the same business. Do you get suspicious when you have a week like this where it seems, at least based on the media reports, that Iran is a little bit more enthusiastic about reaching a deal than they have been in the past? More enthusiastic? It seems that Iran, according to the media reports, is more enthusiastic about reaching a deal this week than we've read about in the past. Do you become even more suspicious about Iran when you read that? No, because they, they as many positive statements, they issue as many negative statements. And they keep sending mixed signals. That is traditionally how they do things. <clears throat> they will cheat on the deal. There is no European I spoke to who doesn't agree that they will cheat. Uh, we know what we know, but as the inspectors kept telling us, and the people at IAA and elsewhere, we don't know what we don't know. And we know that in the past they've had clandestine facilities. So they may be willing to cut back on certain aspects, you know, of the 20% enriched uranium because it's a far less significant today. They have stand stood still in their demand, and the West keeps moving. We started, if you remember, in the original Security Council resolution, there was supposed to be zero enrichment. Then it became 500, then 1,000, then 2,000, now 4,000, 6,000. Now we're talking about 7,000, maybe more centrifuges that will be left active. That's enough to build a bomb. And the, the fact is that they will be able to proclaim that they got what they wanted. We, we know that, they, that the ballistic missile capacity, the weaponization is not covered by the agreement. The research and development, not covered by the agreement. And the aspects that are whether it's the Iraq plant, the Fordo plant, we're already seeing those demands supposedly watered down. Now, again, we don't know the full extent of the negotiations, what's happening, because it's all being done behind closed doors. But people who were present at the Munich conference where the sideline talks took place said that the general mood was skepticism that a deal could be reached. And that has consequences, too. If there is no deal, what's the next step? What happens to the sanctions? What happens... To, uh, to our European allies. As long as it's Iran that, that it sabotages it and Iran is seen as responsible, then I think um, there, there will be a unified response. We have to look also at Iran's increasing aggressiveness in the region. We have more information now about this Unit 190, which is uh, providing weaponry to, in the Middle East. We know that their ships were caught trying to bring weapons to Gaza. The, the, the increased activities with Hezbollah, especially on Israel's northern border, and uh, they constructed explosive devices, and, um, and then you had suicide attack car bombs prepared by the Syrian security in, in public places. The Iran Revolutionary Guard doesn't do it just on their own volition. We see that the further developments in Yemen, where they've taken over the capital, took over the Americans and pulled out of our embassy, as did others, the how things took over the weapons and the cars we left behind and the other material we left behind. 
as has been the, the situation before. And, and they look at this whole situation in the Middle East, and you see the reign of terror that Jordan moves the troops to the Iraqi border, carries out, what, 60 or more airstrikes already. And all over the world, we're seeing the copies of, the, of ISIS or IS. Now, uh, groups, uh, whether it's beheading Sinai tribesmen or in Australia planning for, for attacks, and you know that you, the nexus of all of this is Iran, and, and knowing that addressing Iran collectively will, is the only way that we can assure is the only way we can assure that this stuff doesn't grow more and more, become more serious in the in the coming months. Iran is never going to stop this aggressive behavior, and I, I could give you a dozen examples just over the last week about the kind of things that, that are uh, taking part, that in which they are taking part, and, um, and especially disturbing to me is about uh, Hezbollah taking uh, a greater and greater role in the fighting in the Golan, in the Golan area, um, and, and wanting to replace some of the rebel groups that are, are stationed there. With, 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 all, with, with all that, with all that it, it would seem logical for President Obama and others in Washington to basically say, you know what, it's time to just make a deal, any deal. Because you're describing that no matter what deal happens, it's likely going to be a bad one, it's likely going to be violated by the Iranians. Do you think there's that type of pressure in the back rooms in Washington now that we must come out of this period of time, February and March, with any type of deal? Any type of deal will be a capitulation and only assure that Iran will increase its activities, will endanger more countries and more regimes, and that when we talk about it the next time, we're going to be talking about a far more serious situation. But do you suspect that that's what's going on? That there are people in the yes. administration? You do suspect that that's what's going on? Let's just get any deal, any type of deal, and get it done. No. There are people who say, get a deal, and then the implementation, we'll worry about this, we'll worry about that. It will not work. If the strict regulations are not in place with enforcement, with punishments, with sanctions, and most of all, true transparency, we don't even have the manpower to do all the inspections necessary. IA has the technical capacity. I think the people there, the leadership there has become much more honest and forthright about what's going on in, in Iran. They uh, are in doing inspections every single day, many inspections. Um, but again, it's about the known facilities and only what Iran has let them be. So there, any deal has to incorporate both the punishments. I mean, it'll certainly have incentives. They'll, they'll talk about reducing sanctions, etc., because Iran won't go into a deal otherwise. But if we yield on these fundamental points and Iran stands still and says, we emerge from all of the negotiations, all the threats, all the sacrifices that have been made, it will mean that this regime will become much tougher, more uh, more aggressive, and only to see the weakness of the West proven once again. Malcolm Holine is with us from Vienna, Austria. i got to go back for a second to BB speech for a moment, especially because you're, you're um, uh, spending a lot of time with Jewish leaders at the moment, and we're watching uh, you know, people like Abe Foxman on one side of the issue and people like Elie Wiesel on, on the other side of the issue. Uh, what do you think the percentage of... Uh, uh, American jury, how they fall in terms of the proposed Netanyahu presentation 
to Congress. If we if we go along voting lines or the way people traditionally in this country from the Jewish community, you know, the way they fall in terms of uh, politics politically, uh, you'd have to assume that 70 to 80 percent do not want B.B. delivering this speech at the United States Congress. Do you think that's accurate or do you think it's much more split down the middle? I would venture to say it's split down the middle. I think that uh, people are worried about Iran. Do you want to hear what he has to say? I'm sure there are many who are very uncomfortable. Certain members of Congress have said so with the way this came about. But I think now is the time to put, you know, aside a lot of the personal feelings. I hope they can be addressed. Do you have any? Do you have any idea what? Be on the issue. Do you have any idea what? Do you have any idea what percentage of the Democrats are not going to be at the at the speech? Like, because you you follow this stuff right, in terms right. of, of in terms of who's yeah, making right now it's small. It is small. And, and, and do you have any idea? Including some members of the Black Caucus, Charlie Rangel said so, and others, and and, and Greg Meeks from the New York area. They should hear from their constituents who are concerned about. Right, it. and we keep hearing about certain members of Congress that are that are on the fence. That would also be a very good idea. If you know that your member of Congress is on the fence about being at that speech or not, you could call and have some influence in terms of a he or she making that decision one way or the other. And the other thing is, do you have any idea if, and I know you'll be in Israel this coming week, so you'll probably know more, but do you have any idea how this is playing in terms of the polls in Israel? I know we don't trust polls in Israel and all that, but, but one could figure that BB's either getting, you know, re- a real backlash or a real bump uh, with this whole, you know, uh, with this whole controversy over the speech. Have any clue which one it is? Right. I have to conclude now because the chancellor is walking in, but so far the polls have supported BB, and the people, uh, I think, recognize the importance of the issue. They're confused about the process, but the, I think overall the polls that I've seen seem to indicate that it has not hurt BB's uh, political standing. Next week from Jerusalem? Yes, sir. Thank you. Have a wonderful Shabbos in Vienna. There he is, Malcolm Holmline, Executive Vice Chairman of the Conference of Presidents of Major American Jewish Organizations. He's on this unique mission with leadership of the uh, Jewish world in uh, American Jewry, I should say, in Vienna, Austria. This is where he'll be spending Shabbos. Next week he'll join us from Jerusalem. Tried to get as much of the weekly update in as possible. I think you, anybody who heard the last 20 minutes got the feeling that the, uh, the room that Malcolm was in was either uh, filling up or was becoming less and less uh, conducive to conduct a phone conversation as time was going on. But we did get, we got 20 minutes in there, right? We got about 20 minutes uh, from Vienna on the issues of the day. Covered a lot of stuff regarding this crazy world of ours.